This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. We made it to another Friday. Before we start the weekend, let's take a look back at the biggest stories of the week. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. We're back with our weekly news recap, where we go behind the headlines and get the details with some of Chicago's best journalists. We'll talk about a ton of stories, stories like these. More than 3,000 migrants are still awaiting placement and shelters. City resources are already strained to the limit. The Johnson administration scrambling to open more shelters. When I arrived this morning here and I saw all the people outside, it hurts me. There are still families with children, and we are not animals. Let me introduce you to this week's panel. We spoke to a familiar face, Alex Nitkin, reporter with the Illinois Answers Project for the Better Government Association. Greg Hines, political columnist for Crane's Chicago Business, also made a reappearance. And joining us for the first time was Madison Saavedra, Block Club Chicago reporter covering Pilsen, Little Village, and Back of the Yards. We started the conversation talking about migrants. They're still continuing to arrive in the city at a pace that's making it challenging for city officials and local organizers working with them to keep up. President Biden says he'll expand the wall on the border, started by Donald Trump. And he also said that the U.S. will resume deporting Venezuelans. Madison gave us the details. A lot has happened this week, just as there has been pretty much every week for a year now. There is going to be this kind of change in procedures going on at the border. Um, there's also news out of you know our own city's government that Mayor Brandon Johnson and others, part of a delegation, are going to go down to the border. It's unclear what who exactly is going, what the dates are. Um, you know, speaking at a press briefing earlier this week, uh, city officials kind of said that the goals for this trip is just increased coordination. I think that's been something that officials have lamented about this entire crisis is that there is no there is no heads up, there is no collaboration to make sure that people are arriving in a safe manner. You know, people are more and more people are arriving <coughs> sick. Mm-hmm. That was something that also came out of this briefing. And, and these migrants, so so we're clear, they aren't only arriving from Texas. Correct. Right? Yes, there are quite a few that are coming from. Denver, just as an example, that's mm-hmm. a city where local organizations are buying free plane tickets for folks. So we're seeing those people show up at O'Hare, which O'Hare in and of itself, there's been a doubling of the amount of people being housed at O'Hare International Airport. That's one of the staging areas along with like police stations mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. As you mentioned, Mayor Johnson says he'll head to the southern border to, quote, assess the situation. Now, New York City Mayor Eric Adams is actually in Mexico now to to witness what's going on. And so, as you said, it's still kind of unclear uh, the details there. Uh, Any idea when Mayor Johnson might go? 
still up in the air. We talked about it at a press briefing yesterday, and there was still no update. Mm. Well, let's hear from Mayor Johnson himself. This is what he said about heading to the border. So going to the border is to make sure that everybody knows that my administration is committed to making sure that we are putting together the full force of government at every single level to ensure that these families, who, by the way, they're not illegal, they're asylum seekers. Greg and Alex, I mean, what are your thoughts on what this mayoral trip <clears throat> is about? Uh, Sasha, if I had any hair, I'd pull it out. <laughs> um, this is a classic failure of government at every level, uh, from Washington to Springfield to Chicago. <clears throat> it starts in Washington, where Joe Biden can't seem to make up his mind what he's going to do. I mean, he's building the wall now this week, Joe Biden. Uh, Republicans seem to hate every serious effort to, to deal with the, the problem. Uh, but, but yet the, the federal government has the ultimate control over the border and certainly has the financial resources. <clears throat> um, uh, uh, Prisker, at the, at the state, has done some but needs to do some more. Uh, the city of Chicago can't float, can't carry this boat all on its own. Uh, and, you know, I give Mark Jensen credit for crying, but for heaven's sake, we knew this has been coming. It's been developing for the last year. Why are we talking a year into this about building tents in the middle of the winter in Chicago, which is absolutely ridiculous, and we all know it's ridiculous. Mm. Um, yeah. Like I said, nobody seems to have a, have a, uh, a handle on this, and as time goes on, it's starting to spark some pretty severe tensions between people who are here now, particularly poorer people, who say, hey, why don't you take care of us? Why, you why aren't you taking care of them foreigners? And, and, and a bunch of hungry people who are just searching for public life. It's just a disaster. So you're unimpressed, it sounds like, with, with, with how things have been handled so far. What, what are your thoughts here, Alex? I mean, I personally just don't really understand what the end game is of going to the border. How he can really spin it is anything other than a photo op and a public opportunity to, like, show the world that I care about this and I'm doing something. I'm sure that a lot of folks would say, hey, there are a lot of things like this is a crisis for us here in Chicago and not necessarily because of anything that you can do by going to Laredo or wherever. It's because of um, people sleeping on the floors in police stations and shelters that are overcrowded and don't have, um, you know, enough sort of food and sanitary conditions because of all of these institutions that are being strained here in Chicago. And mm -hmm. so I just don't think I really got the message of what when there are so many things that need to be done, what exactly he wants to accomplish by going to the border. Well, sticking with you, Alex, on Monday, Governor Pritzker weighed in with a letter to the White House criticizing them for, quote, a lack of intervention and coordination at the border. Any more details on this letter and, and what do you think it symbolizes? Not a whole lot of details that we can tell. I mean, it really symbolizes that like Greg was getting at, there's just a lot of finger pointing and a lot of blame to go around. And obviously, you know, like we see, unfortunately, response to all kinds of, you know, whether it's a violence crisis or any other crisis that emerges, where all of the different stakeholders, obviously, everyone does have fingers to point. Everyone has a role, but it's a lot easier to um, blame the other person than to explain why you are not doing as much as you maybe could be. Yeah. I mean, we saw... I guess this was a couple days ago or maybe last week, a lot of tensions between um, Mayor Johnson's allies in the city council and Governor Pritzker over why isn't the state doing more. And um, it's interesting that not necessarily a direct response to that, but Pritzker is kind of turning to Washington and saying, Washington, why aren't you doing more? Which right. I think that to be fair. And Washington's saying, you know, they've given the city of Chicago and, and the state of Illinois more than $46 million in, in grant funding for 
for migrants. Yeah, which sounds like a lot, but in the context of a crisis as big as this that is honestly accelerating, it's going to run out quickly. And I mean, I think to the to the governor's credit, the federal government is sitting on a lot more money than the state of Illinois is. Uh, but also, this state of Illinois does not have to get appropriation through a Republican Congress. What do you think the letter signals, Madison? I think it signals pretty much what Alex pointed to is that it's a lot of it's a lot of finger pointing, and that's not to say that the federal government isn't truly where reform could happen, because I think everyone's in agreement that that is where these big changes have to happen. Um, but as we saw in, there was a city council committee meeting last week, and you know Alex kind of alluded to this, that there was a lot of finger pointing between the city and the state, and how the city officials are saying pretty much the same thing to the state, that you have a lot more money that you could be giving to this situation. Yeah. So, oh boy. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, Greg, we've seen a dramatic increase in the number of migrant buses arriving over the past couple of weeks. Is Chicago going to be in the midst of a humanitarian crisis when Democrats converge on the city next August? Well, they certainly hope not. But uh, <clears throat> um, the, but we're it, talking about the DNC, of course. Uh, but uh, who knows at this point? I mean, as my colleagues have suggested, the crisis seems to be getting worse, not better. And they're not solving it. We've entered in the... Uh, political buck-passing phase where uh, Democratic-run uh, Denver uh, sends it to Chicago, Democratic-run uh, uh, El Paso sends it to Chicago, Democratic-run Chicago says, hey, not us, deal with it, somebody else. Um, uh, I think that the, in a way it's good that the convention's going to be here because maybe that will put a little pressure point on this. Um, uh, my, my view of, of Pritzker's uh, uh, letter is that uh, is I'll take him at his word that, that he wants more and he doesn't think the feds are doing as much, but he also doesn't want to bear the political blame. I think his, mm. I think his advisors just tell him this is turning toxic. I mean, do we have infighting among Democrats? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, look at some of the comments about, about Biden's uh, decision to resume building the wall, uh, for instance, from members of the Latino caucus in Washington. Right. Um, but the very fact that the Democrats are going to be here and know they're going to be in the spotlight, that may bring this a little bit of a boil and force them to do something. Yeah. Well, part of the concern for migrants is that winter is going to be here before we know it. You know, as, as temperatures start to drop, what is the city doing, Madison, to provide housing for asylum seekers? I mean, we still have migrants overnighting in police stations who have to then be outside during the day. Right. Mm -hmm. So what are the, the options here so far? Well, the option that I think we're all waiting to see come into fruition are these base camps. So this was something that the city signed a contract for with this company card called Garda World. It's subsidiary Aegis, Aegis Defense Services. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Um, that was over almost a month ago when the mayor unveiled that plan that he wanted one to two basically refugee camps, but in the city of Chicago where, you know, I think up to 1,500 people maybe could be housed there to get people out of police stations and the airports as soon as possible. It was, you know, I think the decision came as like, you know, you were looking, winter is coming. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not to quote a TV show, but winter is coming. Winters here are very brutal. People are having to stay outside of police stations because they're so overcrowded. And these base camps are supposed to be winterized. But, you know, I'm, there's been some fierce pushback, um, criticisms from a lot of the mutual aid workers mm -hmm. who, you know, work on the front lines with asylum seekers and migrants. There's been lots of pushbacks as to whether 
you know, what, how winterized are these base camps going to be? Right. What happens if there is a polar vortex and it's, you know, negative 30 with wind chill again? Yeah. You know, these are people who, they're not used to winter at all. You know, they come from Central and South America, a lot of them. So No snowstorms in Caracas? Surprisingly, no. I mean, no. maybe one day. Well, <laughs> I mean, you, you talk about pushback. There's, you know, some Southside residents, too, filing a lawsuit to, to stop the city from using public buildings mm-hmm. to house migrants. Any other details on that? I think that's a lawsuit that comes out of plans that were eventually scuttled, I believe, to turn a South Shore high school into a shelter I think that situation is just one example of broader pushback that residents have, you know, voice to can voice to plans about turning public spaces into shelters. You know, on the west side, they're raising concerns about the converting um, Amundsen Park Fieldhouse into a migrant shelter. And Pilsen residents also turned out for a community meeting. Uh, This was about a warehouse Mm -hmm. being converted uh, into a, a migrant shelter. Yeah, I think the consensus for all of those is, you know, critics are saying we've we're here, us residents, we have problems X, Y, and Z. Property taxes are increasing. That's a big issue in Pilsen. You know, disinvested communities have existed in Chicago forever. Now they're getting investments to create these shelters that seemingly no other residents would have access to. So yeah. I. I, I can see where they're coming from, but I think the city has pushed back to say that this is an emergency, um, you know, and it's not diverting any funds from other services like, you know, services for people experiencing homelessness. That's been something the city has said over and over again, that it's not necessarily like taking over somebody else's slice of pie. Yeah. Greg, Chicagoans had a chance to weigh in about what is known as the Bring Chicago Home Ordinance at City Council this week. Can you remind us what the ordinance would do? The ordinance is intended to raise more money to help fight homelessness, uh, both uh, uh, physical spaces, places where people can live, and supports wraparound services, by increasing the tax on the sale of high-end properties. Um, uh, It's been restructured since its original form, uh, where originally it was going to be a flat increase. Now it's graduated. Uh, uh, For for most homeowners, it would actually reduce the amount they have to pay a little bit. Uh, but uh, for, for sales of over a million and a half dollars in particular on that increment, above a million and a half, it increases it to 3%. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that sounds good if you view it strictly as a mansion tax. I mean, if somebody's got a $3 million condo, well, maybe they do have some bucks and we can shake them down. The problem, though, this applies to all sales. Uh, if... if, uh, if uh, Mom and Pa Jones have a have a have a three flat on a northwest side and it sells for two million bucks, uh, and and they keep their, their rents low. Guess what? They're going to have to pay the tax if they sell the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a uh, if a small uh, business owner uh, owns uh, owns the structure his building is in and an apartment upstairs and it's worth more than a million and a half and he sells, he's going to have to pay. Uh, downtown office uh, <coughs> offices now are uh, one quarter empty. We have the highest vacancy rate since the depression. So what's the city going to do to help out? Or are they going to hit them with a big tax if they try to sell that and and and, and save whatever pennies they have left? Yeah. Um, so this is this is this is a, a classic example of of whether 
trying to do something good that everybody agrees needs to be done, whether this is a solution or whether it's going to cause as many problems yeah. as it solves. Well, Alex, tell us what Chicagoans had to say at City Council about this you know, proposed property tax increase. You had a lot of the arguments going back and forth. Again, we're talking about the real estate transfer tax, which I believe you said it was a seller. I think it's the buyer. The buyer pays on any property if you're going to buy a vacant lot or a skyscraper, everyone pays the exact same rate. Of but the seller's going to get less because the person's well, yeah, pay so less. It, so it, uh, it artificially deflates the value of the property in that way, right? Um, but no matter what you're, you're buying, everyone pays the exact same rate. There's been this proposal called Bring Chicago Home that originated with the Chicago Coalition of the Homeless a number of years ago that was basically saying if you are buying something over a million dollars, you should raise that rate. Um, and so uh, it... You know, Mayor Lightfoot momentarily seemed like she was going for it, but then she doubled back and said that she wanted to use that additional revenue for everything. The advocates said, no, we want a lockbox, a so-called lockbox on this so that it can only be spent on um, homelessness services. And so mm-hmm. essentially this hearing, you had folks in the you know downtown, uh, generally in the, in the real estate industry writ large, saying, just like Greg was saying, you know, it's called a mansion tax, but the folks who are paying this, yes, it's, it's 6% of the transactions in the city uh, who are paying more than a million dollars for real estate, but these are mostly um, for anyone who wants to buy a commercial property. In yeah. other words, an apartment building, an office building, a uh, manufacturing facility, the things that are responsible for most of the, the taxes and a huge share of the taxes that are generated by the city. And so, yeah. um, yes, it's... There, the down to the uh, office owners are arguing. Look, this is going to be an, just another burden that you're putting on us, and a sort of economically depressive force that you're laying on us that'll make it harder to attract investment, to get people to buy, uh, invest in buildings. The sort of counter argument is, well, yeah, but we're, we're getting something out of it, which is a hundred million dollars extra a year to deal with exactly the the kind of crisis that we're talking about, not just with refugee resettlement, but with um, Advancing affordable housing mm-hmm. at all parts of the of the sort of stream of downstream of you know resettling people who are living on the streets and more upstream yeah. um, funding more construction of very affordable home affordable housing so that you know twenty years from now we may not be in the same kind of housing crisis. Yeah, this right. revenue is is supposed to help fund various programs for the unhoused. Mayor Johnson though announced another step in his effort to to fight homelessness this week. Who's this uh, chief? Homelessness officer? Yeah, good question. I don't think we have a name yet. Um, this was basically the announcement is... Um, that one will exist. There will, <clears throat> at some point, be a chief homelessness officer. And it's interesting because I, I had sort of glanced at it. I assumed that they had named someone, but no, they're just they creating the position of a chief homelessness officer. I think that this is one of the real issues with the Johnson administration so far is how slow they've been to really staff up and fill out their administration. I mean that this is something that has been experienced all over the place, just like hard time recruiting in general. But, you know, there are so many, we're talking about advancing homelessness and affordable housing goals. We still don't have a permanent commissioner for the Chicago Department of Housing or the Chicago Department of Planning and Development. And so this position, you know, we didn't get a whole lot of details. Basically, the idea, as it was explained, is to coordinate between the Department of Housing and the Department of Family and Support Services. Those are the two city departments primarily concerned with housing and homelessness issues that it's going to do a lot of cross-department coordination, um, which is always important. I think that, you know, Rich Miller at Capital Facts made a really good point that, like, his question is, is this person going to have any staff working under them? Because when someone, you know, an office is created, 
I, this is a lot of the discourse that you hear around the ideal of, of, of like chief sustainability officer in the city versus Department of Environment. Like, okay, yeah. you can have a person who's sort of wearing the jacket for this and coordinating, but if they don't have people who are really doing the work uh, underneath them, mm. then we don't really know what's going to come from it. Before we take a pause, Greg, you had a story this week about how vacant office space could impact our property taxes. What'd you find out? <clears throat> well, um, Chicago's property tax system, nobody really, re nobody understands it, to be perfectly honest. You have to be a nuclear, it makes nuclear that is, that is for you. Maybe. It makes <laughs> nuclear physics look like child's play. But in some, it's, it's a zero-sum game. Um, the governments come in collectively, the Board of Education, the county, the city, and ask for a certain amount of money. That's called the levy. The levy is distributed to everybody who owns property based on the value of their property. So what that means is that unless the government reduces what it's asking for, which never happens in this town, it goes up or sometimes it stays the same, but not very often, unless they reduce it, um, uh, if the value of your property, a certain of somebody else's property goes down, you have to pick up that load, you and the other taxpayers. So you have the situation downtown now uh, where, uh, where vacancies are the highest rate in 75 years. Uh, Boston Consulting Group, uh, uh, which is pretty well recognized group did a did a did a study recently that that uh, predicted that property values for downtown office buildings and other commercial space would be, would decline 35 to 45 percent when they were valued next um, this is a quarter of the city's property tax base so if if it goes down by anywhere near 25 to 35 35 to 45 percent guess what everybody else has to pay a lot more and everybody else is primarily homeowners so I asked uh, the, the good folks at the University of Chicago's uh, Mansueto School um, uh, to do some research on this, and they rolled out some kind of interesting numbers. Uh, and what they said is that if, uh, if, uh, if, if, if when downtown is reassessed next, which is next year, uh, the average value goes down 10%, well, it won't affect too much. The average homeowner will pay something like 50 bucks more. But... But that's artificially low because of a because of how TIF districts work. You don't want to get into that. I but, see. Yeah. Uh, but it's a little low. Uh, but it goes up quickly if they're down forty percent, uh, which is in the range that, that consulting study is referring to. The average homeowner would have to pay almost five hundred bucks. That's nearly a ten percent increase. That's a lot of money, uh, and that's an average. Uh, 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 in, in certain north side neighborhoods. And uh, that's, sorry, based on an assumption that all valuations of downtown office buildings are down 40% from the last triennial cycle? That's correct. Um, we'll see if, if, that's, if that comes to be the, uh, the case or not. The real imponderable here is what Fritz Kagi, the Cook County Assessor, does. Yeah. Uh, I mean, building owners always are pleading poverty, and they come in and they say, oh, I can't afford this, whatever. Right. They, they have a much better case this year, and, and and Kagi has, has cast a jaundiced eye on such claims and has said, hey, you guys have gotten away with murder in past years. He's been, <laughs> he's been wrapping their, their assessments up. So for this scenario and these kinds of increases to go into effect, Kagi would have to mm -hmm. agree with them and reduce them by that much. That's a bit of an assumption, but we'll see. Something's going to happen. And this is, this is we'll consider this a, a look at how potentially bad it could be. Now we'll turn to another story from Chicago to Capitol Hill. A certain Illinois congressman has been making national headlines. Here's Greg with more. Yeah, it's been a busy week. If you remember, uh, the week started with the uh, possibility that the government was going to shut down. Well, the government didn't shut down because uh, uh, then-Speaker uh, of the House, uh, uh, 
Kevin McCarthy, uh, cut a deal with the Democrats to essentially uh, continue spending at current levels for another 45 days while they try to work it out. Um, uh, every Democrat in the United States House voted for that except Mike Quigley from Chicago. Why? Well, uh, all politics is local, as the old expression goes. Uh, Mr. Quigley has the uh, has uh, perhaps the largest population of Ukrainians of any congressman in the country. Uh, he certainly knows uh, uh, what they want, and they certainly know what he wants. And, and to get this deal through, they had to drop more aid for Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, so Quigley said, hey, I just can't vote for it. It sends a, sends a message to, uh, to Putin that we're raising the right flag here and whatever. Uh, so he, he voted his district. So let's, let's hear from him, because I talked with Congressman Quigley Monday here on Reset. Here's what he had to say. I think there couldn't have been a worse message we sent to our allies, especially Ukraine, that spending bill unless we take Ukrainian funding out. Uh, uh, I think at the same time it was uh, a good day for Putin. So it Quigley co-chairs that Congressional Ukraine Caucus, right? So elimination of funding for their war against Russia sounds like it was an impossible pill for him to swallow, right, Greg? Uh, it... Uh... It, uh, his vote didn't make a difference, so he uh, he he decided to, uh, to to particularly go to help one aspect of his of his of his district. Now that having been said, uh, Kevin McCarthy's uh, ouster later in the week complicates this because it was an understanding side deal to the big deal that well we'll get the Ukrainian aid in a separate bill a little bit later. Right. Well, McCarthy's now no, no longer there to deliver that deal, uh, so uh, so maybe Quigley is right that the money is gone. We're going to have a problem. Illinois' senators have both reaffirmed their commitment to funding Ukraine. Senator Durbin is actually on the far south side of Chicago today. He's supporting the the striking UAW workers at the the Ford plant. So as we've been saying, there was a lot of drama in D.C. I mean, how did Illinois representatives vote on Tuesday, Greg? Um, They... uh uh, with the exception of Mr. Quigley, they uh, voted with their party. Every every Illinois Republican uh, 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 voted uh, voted. Uh, it's pretty unanimous. Yeah, uh, right. Bye bye uh, McCarthy. Correct. Uh, and uh, every every Illinois Republican, including Mary Miller, who's very conservative from downstate, uh, voted uh, to keep him as Speaker. Incidentally, uh, whereas every Democrat went the other way. So sticking with the House of Representatives, Alderman Ray Lopez announced that he's uh, challenging incumbent Congressman Chuy Garcia in the Democratic primary for the 4th District. Tell us about Ray Lopez and uh, this race, Madison. Well, I think Ray Lopez has he has a reputation as one of city council's most conservative members. He was a fierce critic of former Mayor Lori Lightfoot and has definitely put himself on the other side of our current mayor, on a couple of issues, particularly speaking out a lot on the city's handling of migrant issues. But yeah, in Berwyn on Tuesday morning, he said that he is ready to bring, quote, common sense solutions back to Washington. Uh, you know, he said he would support things like raising the minimum, wa- minimum wage, fixing the country's immigration system, bringing fiscal responsibility. All pretty big promises. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair Says to he wants say. to overhaul the country's immigration system. I mean, has he given examples of how he wants to do that? Well, I know he is in favor of further securing the southern border, um, just as an example. He also wants to make some tweaks to the city's, you know, and this is in his capacity as alderman, wants to make some tweaks to the city's welcoming city ordinance, specifically in when government can coordinate with federal officials when it comes to people who, you know, have committed crimes. Um, but 
it'll it'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, this campaign. Obviously, uh, you know, Alderman Lopez. He does have a a history of running in races. He did run for mayor in this past election. He did. Yes. Ultimately, dropped out pretty well ahead. Uh, he dropped out in November, and he also ran for the fourth congressional district back in um, like for the 2018 election when Representative Luis Gutierrez announced he would retire. Ray Lopez was one of the, I believe it was 11 Democrats who threw their hat in the ring. And he also dropped out before that race. So I, I asked him on Tuesday, how do you expect voters to take this campaign seriously when you, have, when you have dropped out in the past? And, you know, he kind of chuckled and was just chalked it up to different timing, different race. Hmm. He said he was in it. So this uh, congressional seat, Garcia has held it since 2017. He himself has also run for mayor twice. Alex, do you think that Chewy is going to be hard to beat? Yes. Next question. (laughs) No, yeah, he's been there since 2019, um, and he has just become such an important power broker in not just Chicago's southwest side, but now it's suburbs. Um, I think, you know, you saw... uh, I saw a statement come out from um, Chewy Garcia's campaign arm following the um, Lopez announcement, and he was pretty quick to point out that, you know, Lopez is a, is a longtime protege of Ed Burke and that sort of southwest side um, old, you know, machine, Democratic machine background. And so I think that even if, um, you know, Lopez is already going to have a hard enough time sort of introducing himself to a lot of those suburban Um, and even city voters, I think that it'll be even harder if he has that sort of albatross around his neck. Garcia's fourth district was redrawn after the last census and now includes southwest suburbs all the way into DuPage County. How do you think that might impact the race, Greg? Um, What Lopez seems to be counting on is that the district is a little more conservative, and indeed there traditionally has been kind of a split in the Latino community uh, between the progressive wing and the more conventional uh, 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 pro-family, uh, 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 pro-law enforcement wing. That having been said, we had kind of a test of that theory right. just two years ago up in the new congressional, third congressional district where Della Ramirez, uh, the progressive won, even though she had a well-funded uh, conventional, more conservative opponent. Everybody said, oh, he's going to do well in the suburbs. He didn't. She wiped the floor. Uh, Including in the suburbs and those more conservative areas. Yes, yeah, so I'd say that th- that's probably a message there for, uh, for, uh, for Mr. Lopez. All right. Uh, we were talking about right-wing viewpoints in the National Republican Party, but Greg, you've been covering some extreme perspectives within the state GOP that's involving a proposed downstate factory. Yeah, I mean the world is the world is a lot different than it used to be. Certainly different than uh, when I get into the business. You used to be able to figure out certain things like Republicans are pro-business; they want to create jobs. So here's J.B. Prisker, who's trying to put the state back on the map in an emerging technology for a change. I mean, this state has lost so many opportunities in the last 30 years. The semiconductor was invented here. The cell phone was invented here. All the jobs, the glory went somewhere else. We we got peanuts. Uh, well, Illinois finally is in a good position in an emerging industry for a change. That's electric vehicles, which, uh, though they have their critics, little by little are picking up steam, and it's, it appears to be mm-hmm. the, uh, the wave of the future. The one thing we've missed is a battery plant. So the state did what southern states and other Midwestern states like Ohio have been doing for 10 or 15 years in the automobile industry. They put together a big incentive package, and they got a company to come in. It's a company called Goshen. It happens to be uh, uh, Chinese-owned, but uh, uh, but they're 
the, their subsidiary. Actually, the building is based in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, the subsidiary's biggest shareholder is Volkswagen. Uh, and they're going to create, in Illinois, 2,600 good-paying jobs. They're going to bring... And they're going to bring their technology here. It's not okay. like we're sending our technology over there. That, however, is not good enough for conservative critics uh, for whom uh, uh, China has, I think, replaced Hunter Biden and Hillary Clinton as, as the big boogeyman. Uh, uh, and they are asserting, oh, boy. Um, among other things, with a straight face, that, hey, maybe this is going to be a spy center. They're going to go down to no, Mokina, no. and they're going to use it as a base to, start to, 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 uh, to uh, spy on key military installations that are right next door, like the National Guard facility uh, 10 miles away in, uh, in, 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 uh, in Kankakee or the, uh, another National Guard facility that's in uh, Joliet 20 miles away. Golly gee. Oh, boy. Uh, but that's, that's what they're arguing. And in this environment uh, where con- political conservatives quickly don't like EVs anyhow, they say we ought to, you know, it's, 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 it's wokeism being pushed by the liberal left. They're literally trying to put a brick on a brand-new factory that would employ 2,600 Illinois. That's the way it is. All right. Well, let's switch gears. The head of Chicago's often-criticized child welfare agency is stepping down. Update us on that, Alex. Yeah, his name is Mark Smith. He had been the um, director of the state's Department of Children and Family Services, DCFS, which is its main responsibility is care of uh, foster children, the kind of jurisdiction that in other places might be, or the, in other jurisdictions might be called child and protective services. Um, and this department has just been, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say an absolute mess going back at least, I don't know, seven or eight years. Um, you know, a lot of them, they attributed that, like a lot of folks in the Pritzker administration, to just sort of dysfunction with the budget crisis of 2015 to 2017 and how the Rauner administration at the time slashed a bunch of funding and they've been picking up the pieces. But Boy, ever since then, it has just been going from scandal after scandal about all the many different ways in which this agency has been failing to live up to its responsibility of essentially protecting kids, you know, wards of the state, the most arguably the most vulnerable members of our society, of our population from, you know, all these horrifying reports of um, abuse, kids who are not been, you know, able to find adequate homes or adequate housing to, you know, not taking care of their employees who have to go into often very dangerous situations. And so, you know, often when you see a high-level administration um, member step down, your first question is, well, why? My first question when I saw that Mark Smith was stepping down was, man, how did he hang on as long as he did? Because he is, just good for question. some context, <laughs> that is a good question. he is the agency's 13th director in 14 years. So being there for 14, for four years that he has is a real accomplishment, um, you could say. Wow. But uh, man, if you've been following this at all, it has just been like hearing after hearing where legislators have just been raking this guy and his staff over the coals making them answer for all of these failures of this agency. And, you know, they have these, they're, they're really make the case that they're trying as hard as they can and they're making in- incremental improvements here and there and they're trying to restore the funding that was cut uh, under the Rauner era. But it's been such a struggle. And, yeah, of course, the question now is who's going who's gonna, to, who would want to be in this position right. next and are they going to be able to make real improvements? Before we take a break, Madison, uh, CTA President Dorval Carter came under a lot of scrutiny this week. So I, I want to hear about some of the great work that your colleagues at, at Block Club have been doing on this. Yeah, I mean, speaking of how is he still hanging on, <laughs> Dorval Carter, he has gotten a lot of flack from city officials, from CTA writers, I imagine from all over the city. 
you know, ghost trains have become common vernacular, you know, the, the buses and the trains that say they're going to show up and never do. So in the background of all of this, my colleagues at Block Club, Manny Ramos and Mac Lederman, they did this great piece um, basically laying out how, uh, you know, Mr. Carter has this inflated, you know, salary in the eight years that he's led the CTA. His salary mm -hmm. has climbed more than 60% um, as of July, making $376,000. He went from 230000 to 376000 mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I gasped when I saw <laughs> that number. Um, and the other thing they pointed out is, uh, whereas most big city transit agencies have more formal accountability measures in place, like written contracts or formal reviews, uh, the leader of the CTA does not have that. So, yeah, anyone who hasn't read this piece on Block Club, I, I really encourage you to do so. It's got yeah. a lot more details that we can cover in here, right. but it was, I mean, fascinating for me. Including a response, you know, from city council now demanding more oversight uh, of the CTA. It's time to talk sports from Chicago baseball to football. But first, we'll start with soccer. Well, yes, but I do think there is an upside to this and that the Chicago Fire had its most well-attended game uh, Wednesday, which... I confess, I'm not the biggest soccer fan, but I'm happy for the soccer fans that are happy with that. Um, the Soldier Field crowd, yeah, it, it made history, which I think is always exciting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I'm a big believer in that sports really brings out this, you know, can bring out a multicultural group of people. And it seems like they were all out in attendance for this game against Inter Miami, uh, which resulted in a four to one win for the Chicago Fire. So mm -hmm. super happy for them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a win is a win. Moving on to baseball. That's a, a wrap for Wrigley this year. Cubs were eliminated from the playoffs on Saturday. The Sox were already out. So baseball's done. Uh, and football fans, uh, sad news, they're mourning the loss of Dick Butkus, who's a legendary linebacker and football Hall of Famer who played for the Bears from 1965 to 1973. Uh, Greg, I mean, his tough working-class style, I mean, not only embodied the Bears, but Chicago. Yeah, you're, you're still in my line, Stasha. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I always like to say that uh, yeah. in some ways politics is our municipal sport, <clears throat> but uh, – but if there's if there's one sport that this team that this city has really followed through the years, with all respect to my baseball friends, it's football, uh, because it goes to how Chicago sees itself as this. Uh, you know, we may not be as as shiny and as sophisticated as uh, as the coast, uh, but uh, golly gosh, we we know how to work and we and we get to it. And we're tough and we we fight off adversity. And and it Butkus just epitomizes. I mean, you're talking a a, a South Side. Uh, uh, blue collar kid yeah. uh, goes to the University of Illinois, gets drafted, I think third uh, in, in in the draft, uh, right next to right next to Walter Payton, I believe, um, uh, who just goes out and literally kicks butt uh, for 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 ten years on the field, becomes the epitome of yeah. a hardworking linebacker. What a loss! Uh, yeah, I mean, he just he just when, when Chicago look in the mirror, that's what they want to look like. But uh, it wasn't all bad news for the Bears. I got to mention that they finally ended their 14-game losing streak, the longest in history. Last night, when they uh, uh, made 40 to 20 against the uh, the Washington Commanders. Anybody watch? I did. And I watched for like five seconds. I did, and 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 I think Justin Fields, the quarterback, has a little bit of that 
of that <laughs> tough guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I, nobody's going to, you knock me down, I get up kind of aspect. I think he's going to, assuming he can, he can, he's now turned a corner and maybe he has the last couple of games. He's a real superstar in the making, perhaps. I hope so. Uh, let's tackle college football in the, the couple minutes we have here, Alex. Former Northwestern University football coach Pat Fitzgerald filed a lawsuit against the school. What's, what's in this one? Well, he's alleging that, uh, well, that after he was fired in relation to the huge, you know, hazing scandal that came out, uh, I guess it was a couple months ago now, he was saying that there was, the university did not substantiate the firing enough. And so he has hired Dan Webb, who's, uh, I guess you could call him kind of a, a celebrity attorney, a very high profile attorney here in the Chicago area. And um, has sued for, this blew my mind when I saw it, the $68 million that remained on his contract uh, with Northwestern. I mean, we think that Dorval Carter at CTA makes a lot of money. This guy was, like, uh, one of the highest paid employees of the university, and so, if not the highest. So uh, he's alleging, you know, that university didn't give enough of a reason for why they fired him. The university came out with a statement saying, are you like? Are you kidding? Have you not been paying attention? Right. You, you were in charge of this whole operation. You need to be accountable for it. You were wearing the jacket for it, and these revelations came out that there was this really horrible hazing scandal. You, uh, you know, you you took the heat. You you were responsible for it, and you're gone. So I don't know. I guess we'll see if um, a, a judge or jury, whoever, is um, amenable to those those allegations. And uh, leave us with this, uh, the, the good news, Greg, for uh, race car fans. NASCAR is circling back to Grant Park next July for another street race. I mean, the weather, we remember, put a damper on the event in, in July, and the audience turnout was lower. Uh, a lot of Chicagoans were frustrated by the street closers that led up to the race. But NASCAR is now promising to, to shorten the setup and, and the teardown times and, you know, make it better, Right. Well, they are. They're also uh, promising to uh, throw some more money at the city. They haven't given a number, but they said, well, at least reimburse the city for, for out-of-pocket costs like police overtime. Yeah. Well, why, was, why wasn't that in the original deal? Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, we'll see. Um, there's a lot we still don't know about this. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, in this aspect, uh, Mr. Johnson, our new mayor, has picked up, is acting like Lori Lightfoot. They didn't bring in the aldermen. They didn't bring in the community groups. They just announced a deal. Yeah. Well, I can't let you go without steering the conversation toward some really good news. Did you all know Chicago was voted the best big city in the U.S. for the seventh time in a row? This was by readers of Condé Nast Traveler magazine. So in the last minute that we have here, I thought it would be fun to, to find out what your favorite thing is about this city. Alex, I know you've been itching to, to go. I mean, I'll just say the food. In particular, I think that the Chicago hot dog is the best hot dog in the world. Much like Mitt Romney, I love hot dog. My favorite meat is hot dog. And um, I love the Chicago hot dog. <laughs> Madison, how can you follow that? Oh, uh, well, I I can't. He stole my answer. But a close, <laughs> close second for me is the lake. Yeah. Love the lake. Love, I live on the far north side. Residential beaches are just the best. Uh, the lakefront path, I'm a big runner. I'll never get over the views, ever. Yeah. Beautiful. That's You stole my answer. Oh, I was going to say the good. lake. What about you, Greg? Uh, my thing is biking. It's the only sport I've ever been good at, uh, and I've always enjoyed some, from a kid, and this is a wonderful bike town. Uh, it's, it's gotten better. It ain't perfect. Uh, I have some some scars under my body, which in another setting I'll be happy to show you from yeah. accidents. <laughs> but it's still a great city for that. 
We'll leave it there. Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business, Alex Nipkin of the Better Government Association, and Madison Saavedra of Block Club Chicago. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank Thank you. you. Have a good weekend. This episode of the Reset Podcast and Weekly News Recap was produced by Andrea Guthman, and it was edited by Maha Ahmed and Brenda Ruiz. If you love connecting with us every week for our recaps, don't forget to subscribe to the pod so that you never miss another one. We post daily from Monday to Friday with a special episode dropping on Saturdays. That's it for today. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Have a great weekend and be safe. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.